The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Mackenzie. Um, I've been going here for about four years now, and I'm really stoked that I get to share with you guys this morning. Um, have you guys ever been talking with someone, or maybe you're reading a really good book, uh, maybe you're listening to a sermon, it could be this sermon, you know, later, who knows, um, and the person says something to you that's like super relatable, um, you read or you hear about this action or behavior that people do, and all of a sudden you're like, ooh, that's me. You feel like really seen and exposed in that moment. This is how I feel when I see memes. Do you guys know what a meme is? Raise your hand if you know what a meme is. Okay, a good amount of you. Good. This is going to land hopefully pretty well. (laughs) Okay. Um, So for those of you that don't know what a meme is, it's a wonderful gift, I think. Uh, Oh, that's not it. Where are my memes? They're coming? Okay, thanks, Steve. Oh, there we go. Okay. So this is a, this is a great example. Um, how many of you watch Netflix and binge it? Okay. Uh, when Netflix asks if you're still there and you see your reflection in the screen and you're like, there's like popcorn crumbs and like maybe some dried chocolate on your shirt and you're like, oh, I've been here for four hours. Like, I don't feel great about myself right now. Right? We can all, some of us can relate to that. Uh, Here's another great one. Trying to sleep and thinking about how I waved back to that person that wasn't waving at me four years ago. (laughs) Okay? I'm a textbook overthinker. This is me to a T. I'm in bed at night like, oh my gosh, how embarrassing. Uh, Maybe some of you parents can relate to this next one. When you're in a public bathroom and your kid goes to open the door and you're like, right? Um, Or uh, maybe you were on your way to church this morning and you're like, okay, kids, it's time to go. Mary Poppins, sunshine and daisies. 15 minutes later, when they're not in the car, you become Batman. I said, let's go, (laughs) right? Now, this next one, this this is for Russell Woods, okay? Because Russell Woods preached on the Sunday after New Year's, and he just had to use this line, the Lord will give you 2020 vision in 2020. And the rest of us are in the crowd, like, rolling our eyes at him. Like, come on, Russ. Like, that was, that was low-hanging fruit. <laughs> but he did it. He did it. And I am kind of proud of him for it. Um, okay, another, another show of hands. How many of you drive the speed limit? Like, old, like pretty, pretty much always. All right, you know what? You guys get a gold star. <laughs> I'm really proud of you guys. <laughs> I know, okay. How many of you don't, like, drive at least five over? Like, chronically. Okay, yeah, me too. I'm married to a cop too, so it's kind of bad. <laughs> Anytime I don't stop at a stop sign, I'm going to hear about it. Um, so this is a great one. When the person in front of you is doing 35 and the speed limit is 35 and you're like, come on, it's 35. You should be at least going 40. Like, are you serious? 
that's, those are kind of some relatable, you know, memes. I love that. Memes are basically this humorous image, video, um, maybe even something about a fashion statement. And it's something that's relatable to most people in our culture. Um, essentially, they're kind of like this satirical critique of our culture. And sometimes they mock things, they poke fun, you know. Sometimes they show us stuff that we don't really like. We're like, ooh, that's kind of true. Like the Netflix one, you know, you're like, yep, I binge watch for four hours. Doesn't make me feel great about myself. Or a lot of the ones that have to do with traffic. Oh, man, I just, I'm like, okay, I had my quiet time with Jesus in the morning, and then I get on the road, and it's, it all goes out the window. I'm not a very nice person. I, it's, it's a problem, okay? So you have this moment when you see these memes sometimes where you feel seen or exposed, and it's totally relatable. A lot of us can relate to it. But it's kind of just this, this moment. So now I know you're all like, how the heck is she going to relate to this, this to the Samaritan woman of John 4? But just stick with me, okay? So the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, that's where we're going to be today. And I love this story for a lot of reasons, but one of which is that there's this crucial moment that the woman is kind of exposed. She's seen by Jesus, kind of for who she really is. And I'm betting she kind of feels a similar feeling to when you see that meme where you're like, ooh, I do that, and it's not a great thing. But in that moment when Jesus exposes her, um, when he kind of sees her for her mistakes, her past, um, she doesn't run away from it. She sits in the tension of it, and she actually kind of presses into it. She knows that the only way forward is to repent and to follow Jesus. She takes his words to heart, and then she goes and she shares her story with others. She becomes this agent of change in her community. And she, um, she doesn't let her low status in the community that we're going to see, she doesn't let that stop her, but she goes boldly, moved by the words of the Messiah, and she brings the good news to others. So we're going to dive into that story today, and my hope and my prayer is that you feel seen this morning, you feel a little exposed, um, but you also feel understood in the best way possible, um, that that exposure moves you to a place of repentance and to a place of overwhelming joy, that you might be emboldened to go and share that joy with others, all right? So let's, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer before we begin. God of grace, we are so thankful um, that you know us, that you created us. You know us more intimately than we know ourselves. Um, just ask that you would um, just speak through your word this morning, that it would pierce our hearts, that your spirit would do a work in our hearts this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, so if you guys want to open up your Bibles, like I said, we're going to be in John chapter 4 kind of going to be in and out of the text, because like I said, I wasn't going to make you, make Julie read the whole thing for you. So just a quick little review. Last week we did chapter three. Jesus had this whole conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, he was a rabbi. Um, basically, the Pharisees then get word that Jesus' disciples are baptizing people in his name. And kind of in typical Jesus fashion, he decides, well, I'm going to go elsewhere. The Pharisees aren't happy with me. I'm going to go somewhere else. So he leaves Jerusalem, and he heads up north to Galilee. But in order to get to Galilee, Galilee's northern part of Israel, he's got to go through Samaria. He could go around it, but he, he goes through it. That's the fastest way. 
So look at verse 5 with me. It says, He came to a town of Samaria called Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour, that is noon. So John's setting up the reader for the coming exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and he's reminding them not just of the physical location of the story that's about to happen, but the history of the location, the the cultural and religious context of the location. So some questions that maybe pop up when you're reading this, maybe you already know the answer, but we're going to ask them anyways. Who are the Samaritan people? Why do the Jews have such a bad relationship with them? So quick crash course on the Samaritans. The Samaritan people held sort of a a middle position in the ethnic system of the day. They were considered non-Jewish people, although their ethnic roots stem from the Israelite people. Essentially, um, the Samaritan people resulted from the intermarriage of Israelites between, uh, with Gentiles after the Assyrian exile. So the Assyrians come in, um, they conquer the region, and instead of those Israelites leaving, they stay and they intermarry with Gentiles. Um, and that intermarriage was not permitted with, uh, under Israelite law. So uh, as oftentimes it led them to worshiping other gods. So the Jews were not stoked on that. They weren't stoked that these people decided to intermarry. And there's some specific things that were very contentious between the Samaritans and the Jews. Um, First of all, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. So um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They only viewed those as scripture. Um, And then they disagreed on where the chosen place of worship was supposed to be. So the Jews believed it was supposed to be on Mount Moriah, where the temple was built, and the Samaritans believed it was supposed to be on Mount Gerizim, which was in Samaria. So essentially, the Jews are like, you're being idolatrous by worshiping worshiping at the wrong mountain. So this huge point of contention for them. Many Jews went so far as to believe that nothing that a Samaritan touched could be touched by a Jew. That's how bad they were like, you guys got this wrong. Um, eye contact was discouraged. The level of distaste and the actions some Jews took to avoid interacting with the Samaritan people is kind of crazy. Some strict Jews would intentionally travel around Samaria. They wouldn't go through it because they didn't want to have any interactions with the Samaritan people. So, uh, hopefully that helps give you guys a little bit of background to what's going on. Um, why this is so controversial that Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, specifically to a Samaritan woman. So look back at verse 7. It tells us it was the sixth hour, so it's noon. Jesus and his disciples have likely been traveling since daybreak, so they're not driving, obviously. They're not taking a bus. They are walking. So it's a pretty tiring journey. So the disciples, they go to get food, and Jesus approaches the well, probably pretty thirsty. And this woman comes up, and her coming up to the well, also not abnormal. But what's unusual is the time of day she's coming to the well, and that she's coming alone. Typically, women would go to the well together. They would go in groups to fetch water for their households. Um, And they usually would do it early in the morning or later in the evening when the sun isn't quite so hot. So it's a little weird that she's coming by herself, and she's coming in the middle of the day. 
but she comes alone. And both of these factors tell us that maybe she was potentially looked down upon by her community. Um, we're going to see in uh, verses 16 through 18 that she made some relationship choices that maybe her community doesn't think is too great. So Jesus is engaging with her um, all alone, unaccompanied. It's kind of scandalous, okay? But he talks to her. She's a woman, she's a Samaritan woman, and he asks her for a drink because he doesn't have anything to draw water from the well with. And she's kind of shocked by this. She's like, what is he doing? This isn't right. This isn't how they treat us. Not that she probably thinks it's great that they treat him that way, but she knows this isn't normal. She belongs to an ethnic group that the Jews view as inferior, unclean, idolatrous. She's viewed as, she's a woman, so she's viewed as a second-class citizen in that culture. And while the action of a man talking to a woman um, is really uncommon in that culture, it's not uncommon for Jesus, right? We see that throughout the Gospels. We see um, that he's often talking to people that are outcasts within society. He's talking to um, people who are diseased, who are poor, um, and in fact, this is kind of interesting. This is um, the longest recorded conversation with a woman in the Gospels. It's not a very long conversation, but it's one of the longest ones. So this is a critical moment that shows us that Jesus' heart is for the marginalized and for those outside, not just the Jews, but those outside the Jewish faith. But like I said, she recognizes how kind of weird this is, that he's even speaking to her. And she responds in verse 9, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And to this Jesus replies, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So confused, the woman responds practically that Jesus has no vessel to draw such living water, whatever the heck that is. And Jesus responds in verses 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what is this living water that he's talking about? So there's a commentator, he writes that living water is water that bubbles up fresh from the spring, as contrasted with like the stagnant water of a cistern. Think of flowing fresh water versus water that's just kind of sitting there with sediment in it. Nobody wants that water. So Jesus, the weary traveler, he appears to be suggesting to the woman that he can do better then the great patriarch, whose presence hallowed the countryside, that patriarch being Jacob, who's very well they're at. And the Samaritan woman is likely thinking, does this stranger think he can immediately find a spring on the spot where Jacob had to dig so deep to find water? Of course, she doesn't understand who she's talking to, right? She has no idea in that moment that she's talking to the author of life, the creator of that living water. He's trying to explain it to her, but she's not seeing the connections right away. The living water that he offers is like uh, what's talked about in Psalm 19, the Torah, the law, it refreshes the soul. 
It's the water envisioned in the last days um, in Isaiah 12, 3, where the people will draw water from the wells of salvation. It's a life-giving stream from Ezekiel 47 that will one day flow down in the desert to bring life where there was once death. It's redemption, it's restoration, it's water that brings freedom, love, and grace. But I think like the Israelites when they wandered in the desert in Exodus, this woman can only kind of comprehend uh, water that um, brings like a, an immediate satisfaction. She doesn't have this concept of this eternal water. Um, She's only thinking about that immediate thirst of the body. Just like the Israelites in the desert, they're only thinking about their immediate hunger and thirst. And God's trying to show them, yeah, I'm going to provide for that. But I care more about the long term. Do you trust me? Do you trust me to feed you eternally, to give you the real life-giving water and the life-giving bread? And I think a similar conversation is having here, is happening here. But she has kind of a different response than the Israelites did in the desert. And even unlike Nicodemus, we see in the last chapter, the Samaritan woman is willing to trust the stranger in this moment. She makes her petition with confidence. Um, Look at verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. In this moment, guys, that's like just like a little shred of faith. That's that like that mustard seed. It's not yet mature, right? But it's still faith, which can become the beginning of understanding. It's the crucial birthplace of faith, which leads to understanding and maturity. Even that thirst for something real is a step in the right direction. One of my favorite quotes by um, A.W. Tozer, it's actually a prayer that he wrote, and he says in it that he thirsts to be made more thirsty still. Sometimes it's a desire for a desire. She doesn't even fully maybe know what she's asking, but she wants something better. And I just want you guys to hear that this morning, that even the meek beginnings of faith, even that little bit, that counts. That's a starting place. It's important and it's crucial. It's good enough. So look at verse 16. Well, the woman, she's eager to receive that living water, Jesus kind of does something interesting here. He asks her to call her husband and to come back, maybe because, you know, women typically went to draw uh, water for their whole households, but maybe also to press into that faith to test it a little bit and that willingness to receive the uh, the living water. So she responds to him, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, this is one of my favorite exchanges in the entire Bible, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, the woman's response, it's technically truthful, right? She's like, I don't have a husband, singular. She's had five husbands, and we're not really sure if the one she's living with now, what's going on there? Um, And that's something that Jewish oral law did not permit. Um, Essentially, she's kind of living as an adulterer in their eyes. 
that she's had all these different marriages and who knows what's going on with the man she's living with right now. So in that moment, that's what I'm talking about where she feels, she probably felt seen or exposed. The jig's up, you know? He sees her. How can he know about her life circumstances, right? He must be a prophet. He's doing what true prophets have always done. He's exposing the sin which sin itself seeks to hide. So she says in verse 19 and 20, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. It's a really weird shift for us. You're like, okay, why are you, how did you get here? So notice in her response first that she doesn't try to defend herself or hide her sin. She doesn't immediately run away. Instead, she presses into it. And in their religion, when sin is exposed, one must ask about the possibility of atonement, of forgiveness. Where do I, where do I go to offer my sacrifice? A sacrifice has to be made. You've, you've shown me that I'm being sinful. What am I, what, how can I fix this? And for them, like I've said, they disagree on where that's supposed to take place. Which mountain is it supposed to happen on? That's her next logical question. Where do I offer that sacrifice? So Jesus responds in verse 21, that a time is coming when worship will take place on neither mountain. The woman has just acknowledged that Jesus is a prophet, and so now he uses prophetic language. A time is coming A time is coming when worship will take place neither on Mount Gerizim nor on Mount Moriah. He's kind of hinting that he would serve as the substitute for for the Jerusalem temple, as the new center of worship after his death and resurrection. It's going to be him. He's the center of it. But keep going. Look at verse 22. He says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now it can be a little confusing. This exchange is kind of hard to read because it kind of feels like Jesus is saying that the Jews are better than the Samaritans. Seems a little out of character for Jesus. But he's actually sharing that the responsibility of sharing salvation with the world was given to the Jews. It didn't make them better than everybody else. In fact, it was a a big responsibility that he put on their shoulders. They were his chosen ones, not because they were special. He just chose them and said, I want you to bring my good news to the world. They weren't supposed to lord it over anyone, over the Samaritans. And their horrible treatment of the Samaritans and the Gentiles is one of the reasons why they experienced God's judgment. But he shares with her that a time is coming when the true worshiper will be seen. The true seekers will worship him in spirit and in truth. And she hears this. And she says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. 
And I want you guys, this moment is huge. Jesus says back to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Messiah. He is willing to reveal himself to this semi-pagan, adulterous woman as the Messiah. This is profound. We see that he cares for the nations, for those outside of of the Jews. Um, and, And this is what Israel was called to do all along, was to share the good news, to be a blessing to the nations, to welcome others into the family of God. And it's crazy that he like directly reveals himself to her as the Messiah because he does not do that with his own people. Are we welcoming people into the family of God? Or are we missing out on who Jesus really is because we have some made-up version of him in our heads? Like the Jews, we expected something different and we're missing it. So look at verse 27. Kind of a shift in the story. The disciples, they now return. And I think they're kind of in shock at the fact that Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. Um, And at that, the woman abandons her water jug. The whole reason she's there. And after hearing that the man standing before her is the Messiah, she runs back to her village. Super excited to share with them who she just met. And the thing she says next, I think, is so beautiful. It's simple, and it's, but it's beautiful. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, obviously, Jesus didn't tell her everything she ever did. He gave her a quick little snapshot. But imagine how it feels in that moment, this big area of sin in your life, and he just exposed it. So it sends her back to her people, excited, like, whoa, I think I found him. I think I found the guy who's going to save us all, who is the true Messiah. And they listen to her, they're curious, and so they go out to meet him. Now, of course, in typical disciple fashion, I love the disciples. I see myself in them so much. Uh, You know, they come back with all this food and they're like, oh, Rabbi, like, please eat some food, drink some water. You must be hungry. You must be thirsty. But Jesus responds and he he essentially is saying that the fulfilling um, of his mission is more important to him than physical food. He's kind of echoing Deuteronomy 8, he says, uh, which says, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus alludes that the food that he has to eat is from his Father. He tells the disciples that the fields are ripe. He's obviously not talking about the literal fields, because it's not actually time for harvest. He's likely referring to the literal group of Samaritans that are coming their way. And his point is that it's time to step up. Others have done the sowing. Someone did some sort of sowing in this woman's heart that she came ready that day to hear what he had to say. But he showed up and he did the reaping. He harvested it. Both the sower and the reaper are important. And he's telling the disciples, guys, the time is now. I'm here. Let's do the Father's work. So the story ends with the reaping of that harvest. Look at verse 39. 
Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world. The story ends with the Samaritans seeing for themselves that Jesus really is the savior. Do you see how John is, is trying to show the reader um, Jesus' character? We talked about in chapter one how he reveals all these different things. God is Messiah. God is, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is king. This one, this story is specifically showing us Jesus is the Messiah. He's not some warrior coming in to save the day. He's a humble traveler offering words of life. He's offering a way of life that isn't necessarily easier, but it recognizes the pain of this world and it offers you the equipment to bear it. He offers you real bread and living water that sustains you through it. But notice that that conversion of the Samaritans, it starts with the humble beginnings of faith. It starts with one person, one woman, recognizing her brokenness and sharing her story. This story reveals um, so much about Jesus to us, but I want you guys to notice two things. That God has invited us to partner with him in spreading the gospel. But we have to be willing to show up. I think we see ourselves in the disciples so often because that's what we're doing. We're so distracted by other things. We're missing out on the opportunities right in front of us. He tells them that the fields are ripe. We've been invited to participate in the history of salvation in the kingdom of God. Let us not keep this message to ourselves or act as if it makes us better than others, but let's shout it. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. We have an amazing opportunity to partner with God. Let's not waste it. And the second thing I want you to know and I want you to feel this morning is that Jesus sees you. He sees us for who we really are. Broken people in need of redemption and restoration. A Samaritan woman, she was exposed in her sin. Yet she realized if even on the smallest level of her need for forgiveness... And that the stranger before her was the only one who could offer that forgiveness. We are also broken and in need of that same Savior. We can rest in knowing that if we repent, we are forgiven of our sins. We are healed of our brokenness. And then we can share our stories of redemption with others. There's power in that and there's relief in being seen, exposed, and understood it means we don't have to hide. We don't have to put on a show. It means we can bring our brokenness to the foot of the cross and surrender it. 
and allow Jesus to give us a better way to live. Allow him to give us the living water that will sustain us and allow us to be truly free and whole people. I want you to think of a time when you felt seen or exposed, maybe in a similar way to this woman. Maybe it's this morning. Maybe it was earlier this week. Maybe it's been a while since you felt that. But I want you to try to enter that place this morning. He sees through all your walls that you put up, all the ways in which you go around hurting other people, the ways you self-protect. He sees you for who you truly are, but he loves you anyways because you are his child. You are his creation. You bear his image. I really love the lyrics from the song uh, Rock of Ages. There's a specific um, line that gets me every time. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. It just paints this image of my head of there's nothing I have. I come to his cross completely broken, empty-handed. There's nothing I can do. He sees me completely naked for who I am. He's the only one that can bring me life, that can bring me forgiveness, that can bring me healing. And that is so hopeful. But it takes that moment of coming to him with your hands open. And whether you've known Jesus for a long time or you don't know him at all this morning, I want to close by sharing um, just my experience with this Savior. Um, it's likely not unique. In fact, I hope it isn't. I hope you hear in it something familiar that draws you to him this morning. Uh, I wrote it as a, as a reflection to this, this chapter. So I just want you all to close your eyes this morning and just listen to these words before we, um, before we take communion. Come and see the man that told me everything I ever did, that knows every facet of my being, that sees past all the walls I put up, all the masks I wear, all the things I surround myself with, the things I consume and that my identity is placed in. My career, technology, clothes, my productivity level. He sees me for who I truly am. A broken person searching for acceptance and healing. I come to his well not just walking, but crawling with my empty bucket. So thirsty, desperate for water. Water that will quench my thirst completely. That will satisfy and leave me feeling whole rather than empty. He accepts me in my brokenness, but refuses to leave me that way. He forgives me and bids me pick up my cross and follow him. He cleanses me of my impure thoughts and selfish deeds and makes me new. 
He says, I know who you are, but more importantly, I know what you can become. This is the God whom I have chosen to follow. He invites me to pick up my vessel and draw from his well. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man, the one that sees me for who I truly am and loves me anyways, the one that offers me not just life, but life abundant. Come and see the man that saw me before I saw him, the God-man who sought me out when I was searching elsewhere, that called me out by name, who is not distant but is with us, who took on human form to sit in the dirt with us, who loved us enough to die for us so that we might live, that we might be known, seen, that we might experience his steadfast love and never-ending peace. Come and see. God of grace, we are so thankful that you see us. Through all the the stuff that we try to surround ourselves with, the ways in which we try to quench that thirst that leave us more thirsty still. Help us this morning, help us to see the ways we need to repent, the things we need to turn from that are keeping us from you, that are hurting our relationship with others. You love us so deeply. Only you can give us this living water. Give us your spirit this morning. Help us to see what we need to do, what we need to give up to draw ourselves closer to you. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.